0: Hello and welcome to the St. Mungo's Podcast. This is episode 22 and this is part 2 of our interview with Stuart Watson on burns management. So let's just jump right back in. Is there any way that we could just run through a few special circumstances and, and just maybe yeah. pluck out a few little adjustments to the treatment? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, so we've got electrical burns. Any any, any big differences in terms of... of, of of you know your approach or your consideration for treatment and management. Okay,
1: the first thing is: is it a high voltage electrical burn in more than a thousand volts? If it is, then ATLS principles are absolutely key in terms of the fact that the person may have had violent movement, which has resulted in a fall as part of that injury. Um, so you've got to look for other um, cervical spine and other long bone and intra-abdominal, intra-thoracic injuries. So that's an absolute key for high-voltage electrical burns. Second thing you're thinking about is cardiac arrhythmias because of direct cardiac injury. And then next you're thinking about the risk of renal damage from myonecrosis and compartment syndrome. So high-voltage electrical burns will cause potential, if they're conducted, for extensive muscle necrosis that releases myoglobin that can poison the kidneys. So there are several absolute key things that that you need to think about that are different about electrical burns. In terms of preventing the um, renal failure, even if a high voltage electrical conduction burn is relatively small, it's best to fluid load the patient with sodium containing fluids um, my preference in this particular situation is to use sodium chloride rather than Hartmann's because, because of the myonecrosis, the patients can get a high potassium um, because you get potassium released. And if you have that in addition to renal failure, and Hartmann's contains some potassium, so it seemed logical just to use sodium chloride with no potassium in it to resuscitate them. So we aim for a high urine output for those patients we check for other injuries, we monitor their cardiac status and we look for signs of limb compartment syndrome um, that might need decompressed.
0: In terms of chemical burns, we we alluded a little bit to it earlier, they can obviously continue to burn. Um, So making sure that you've identified that as a possible um, mechanism uh, in the patient. Any any treatment different, just lots of irrigation, um, anything else?
1: So acid burns, as a general rule, could be irrigated for an hour or so and, and then the patient referred on for treatment. Um, hydrofluoric acid burns require urgent specialist advice because they can cause hypokalemia and hypomagnesemia if they're of a larger area. Um, calcium gluconate is a beneficial treatment for those patients topically. Um, alkali burns are interesting because they are... Underrated in terms of their severity, um, because they they cause uh, liquefactive necrosis that allows the burning agent to go in deeper. and And our feeling in the unit here is that more prolonged irrigation may be beneficial for those, and and, and that's been borne out by experience. Really, that that if you irrigate for hours and hours and hours, you may modify things with alkali burns. And if you test them using litmus paper, they, they stay alkali for a long time. So that's that's worth considering with them.
0: Is there any way to simplify um, triggers for specialist referral? You know, there's obviously that big long list in ATLAS. Can we make it even simpler than that? So we were mentioning there all full thickness burns would probably yeah. be a good starting point. What would be your next kind of summary of, of who to refer to, to burns?
1: De- depending on, shall we start with children? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think children with more than 2 to 3% burns. De- of any depth? Yeah, of any depth, I, I think would be safest referred um, because they, they're immediately vulnerable to complications with infection in a way that adults aren't. Um, children where there's any suspicion of non-accidental injury and then thinking about adults, um, adults with su- specialist sites that could compromise aesthetic outcome or function or which have a high risk of infection. And the latter, the high risk of infection is buttocks, perineum and feet. Um, and also adults where essentially anything where you, you think the patient might have a complication that, that is at risk of a complication that that could risk their life.
0: Um, or cosmetic, which yeah. yeah. So they would be your standard joints, face, hands. Yep. Those would be the big things. Eyes. Okay, so I was... If you don't mind, I was going to move on to major burns. What I mean by that is someone now has arrived in resus, so so a bigger degree of, of, of burns, um, possible airway, um, possible other uh, issues. What are the common... Not mistakes per se, but what are the common things that you see that that maybe we could do a little bit better or maybe don't think about? Because there's obviously a lot of things to think about in the moments, but what are the things that maybe don't get thought about as much as the the others?
1: I think the overall standard of acute care of burns is fantastic in terms of what we see. I think the commonest problem that we see is that the patients get cold and I think there are a variety of factors which affect that. One is I think it's probably inevitable anyway. Secondly, I think, understandably, people tend to be very careful and take a lot of time sorting things out in in the department before and during transfer. And the transfers can be quite slow. And I suppose in a perfect world, if we had quicker transfers of patients who didn't get as cold, that would make it more straightforward for us to look after them. Most other ways, care is
0: fantastic. Okay, so let's take a a particular case. So say someone comes in with 20% burns, mixed, partial and and full thickness around the trunk and and upper limbs and a little bit around the neck. Um, what, What is your first approach to this patient, if you don't mind?
1: I Talk to the patient and see if, if they, were they fully conscious when it happened, were they in an enclosed space with flames and try and get a sense of whether they have had an inhalation or injury, a period of unconsciousness, a period of hypoxia, something that gives you a sense of whether this is a more complex injury than the skin burn is telling you.
0: Okay. We mentioned a little bit about heat loss prevention. Um, so obviously we have to expose the patient, yeah. um, get a good assessment of, of the burns and, and document all of that. What would you do then after that in terms of preventing any further heat loss? What would what, what you like to wrap them in? Even temporarily say yeah. we're waiting on your arrival. What, what what do you prefer? That's
1: a very good, good question. And I suppose in a perfect world, what I would do is very gently clean the wounds with warm, warm saline and then wrap the patient in cling film and just make sure the cling film's not too tight. But cling film is great. And then I'd put on a big sterile towel and then I'd put a bear hugger warming blanket over the top and actively warm the patient as much as possible.
0: Um, Just for our pre-hospital colleagues, if that's okay, um, we were talking about heat loss prevention and the, the initial cooling for the burn. So in those bigger burns, um, say twenty percent or whatever. And um, what would be the best principles in terms of not overcooling the patient? What, yeah. what would you advise?
1: If if you have a, a a very big flame burn, that in many ways the damage is done, and you can't modify it by cooling in the same way that you can a superficial scald injury, and the pain is less of an issue. It's it's a if there is pain, it's a deeper seated pain that cooling doesn't doesn't influence. So I think just a brief period of cooling to ensure that the patient has no more active burning, you know, two or three minutes, and then application of cling film at the scene and, as everyone knows, emergency transfer to um, supportive care at the hospital is the most important thing for the the patients
0: with life-threatening injuries. Considering some of the big issues around the major burn patient, um, and one of them is obviously airway. Any thoughts yourself on airway? You did mention that you, you you've always been satisfied or fairly impressed that that's one of the things that we generally I, do well.
1: I think we I think as a as a collective we tend to slightly over intubate patients who are referred from other centres. But I think the bottom line is that that is the safest process for transferring patients from other centres, because it's a catastrophe to have someone who loses their airway in an ambulance or helicopter. Um, So that is an inevitable consequence of keeping people safe during transfer. But if you had a perfect world, we would have a system where we could somehow, you know, monitor people's airways during transfer and we'd maybe avoid intubating a few patients but overall, airway management is excellent because we the patients with the really bad burns we get them with secured airways, and and that is the one way that patients die quickly, uh, you know, with burns other than dying at the scene, is if they is if they lose their airway in the first few hours, and and you know that compares starkly to when I started off in burns, you know, thirty odd, odd years ago, uh, where. We used to worry about, you know, occasionally having to do emergency trackies for patients who were turning up at the unit or things like that. You know, nowadays we have very safe airways and, and, and excellent management. So the, the price that we pay for that is occasionally patients with superficial facial burns get intubated unnecessarily. And people maybe just think about that occasionally, you know, if, if it's a very superficial burn and just wait for half an hour, an hour with your anaesthetist in your centre and, and think about it. Maybe there's a way of transferring a patient without intubation if it's very superficial.
0: Is there anything that can be done for inhalational burns? Now, forgetting the intubation to protect the airway, but in terms of facilitating its healing, um, any treatments or anything that that, that you consider or, or give?
1: There is no evidence base for any specific treatment for airway burns, but At the moment in the UK, it is popular to do an early bronchopulmonary lavage with a buffered solution to remove a lot of the carbonaceous material that can be damaging for the alveoli. Another thing to think about is if the patient has a persistent acidosis is to give hydroxycobalamin as an agent against cyanide poisoning. So that's not so much helping the airway burn to heal, but it's uh, a general condition of the patient. So cyanide is always a possibility in a house fire um, with um, synthetic furniture. And and that's something that, again, many units in the UK will use and that we've probably used more often recently. But there's no specific treatment. But modern ventilation techniques, um, high-frequency ventilation, proning, a variety of skilled ventilation techniques have significantly improved the mortality. So our, our critical care colleagues' management of the delivery of oxygen and to the, the patient um, has improved hugely in the last 20 years and, and avoided some of the complications. And that helps a lot more inhalation patients to survive than used to.
0: Okay, so let's come to fluid fluid resuscitation. Um, what's your advice on this? Um, we've obviously have the Parkland formula. Is that still the, the, the go-to kind of standard or, or how would you approach it? Are, are we overthinking it? Are we being too precise? Is, is it just to get us, you know, what, how would you approach fluid management?
1: My, my own feeling is that if, if you give an appropriate resuscitation amount quickly, as soon as you first see the patient that is a very, very good start. And I would personally, if it was me that was there, I would ignore the partland when the patient arrives. And if it's an adult, just give them a, a litre or two of fluid straight in if you're sure it's a really big burn. If it's a child, give them 20% of a blood volume of Hartman's straight in um, if, it's, if you're sure it's a big burn. And then calculate the partland around that. Um, and yes, we do use Partland and you should use it fairly carefully because we are in an era where abdominal compartment syndrome particularly, but also other complications of excessive fluid resuscitation have been a real bugbear for, for management of burns patients. So we, we need to be careful that we don't overdo it. But I think the the, the typical emergency medicine approach of getting an instant, really quite rapid refilling of the patient is a very, very good one for your typical burn patient. I remember a long time ago leading um, a nice article, I think it was from Israel about um, using an early peak of fluid and they showed that that gave the patient a smoother resuscitation later because they caught up and, and the patients were less acidotic, they had less other complications. So there's no question in my own mind that if you if you can give a, a large but safe amount quickly, then that gets the patient off to a good start.
0: One to two liters. Yep. And in terms of the type, you did mention before that if you're suspecting myonecrosis, yep. then normal saline would be the best. But you did mention Hartman's there. So if yep. you're not thinking that there's risk of, of lots of muscle damage, yep. then Hartman's would be a similar choice. Okay. And,
1: and the only patients that I personally wouldn't use Hartman's in are the Electrical conduction burns. The, the other ones I, I would use at Hartman's for,
0: for all the patients. So in terms of ongoing fluid management, get in a little bit of peak fluid, like you say, and then work out the Parkland formula. In terms of measuring ongoing fluid requirements, what, what do you do? And, and can I ask another thing as well, maybe part of that? Do you add maintenance fluids to your Parkland formula?
1: We use maintenance fluids for children, but for adults, the only maintenance they have is their feed unless there are specific other reasons. But we we would try and get NG feed in adults uh, as early as we can.
0: And in terms of measuring ongoing fluid requirements, is it still mostly urine output kind of measurements?
1: Absolutely. And, and that's a very important factor about the Partland formula. and And it, it, this is absolutely key to the principles of burn resuscitation in adults you would aim from z- 0.5 to one mil per kilogram per hour and if it's more than that you would actually try and ease it back and in children you'd aim for about one to 1.5 mils per kilogram per hour and again if it's more than that you'd be looking to ease it back because they they've the deleterious effects of over-resuscitation are almost as bad as they are of under-resuscitation for burn patients. It can be a real tightrope. Yeah. And, and it, it is a huge challenge in the critical care patient because the, the ICU uh, doctors are also having to balance the fact that they're having to heavily sedate the patient, which alters venous return and cardiac output. They're having to ventilate the patient, which alters venous return, Um, So they have all these other factors which complicate the amount of fluid that the patient needs. So often in the ICU patient, the patient needs much more fluid than we'd actually like to give to maintain the urine output where we'd want it. And and that is a huge challenge at the moment in in modern burn care. To the extent that our our ICU team are, are always working on ways of using small doses of inotropes to kind of minimise the fluid requirements where they can to support the circulation by squeezing the peripheral circulation, by improving the cardiac output. So it's a real tightrope and, it, and it's a huge issue and a fascinating challenge in, in burn care.
0: Um, what about milk?
1: We're very keen on that and, and that that is another really um, useful question in terms of giving people a sense of what to do with burns. If you have a major burn patient who has a Delayed transfer, then it 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 makes it probably makes a material difference to the patient's long-term outcome if we can commence feeding the patient early on. How early? Um, I would have thought once the dust has settled from the initial stressful period of getting safe analgesia, um, IV access, um, cleaning and dressing. So maybe a couple of hours after arrival
0: so it should be something that should still be considered in acts yeah. in the emergency or,
1: and it's you know small amount initially just so, so so the patient's stomach gets gets used to to it but
0: and that could be standard milk from the fridge it could yes so percentage burns plus age is that a good useful predictor of mortality do you think it it is um
1: but it's nowadays you can think of in terms of mortality, you have to add another 10 to 40 into that equation. So it it gives you a sort of hint, um, particularly the extremes of age. But anywhere between, you know, 10 years of age and 40, the actual total amount is, is much higher. So, for example, one of my colleagues from Chelmsford published a paper in which he showed that they'd moved that score the, the Bose score up to about 130 or something like that for many many of their patients um in terms of what the predicted outcome of survival was but it's still useful in it and it, it's um it gives you a sense of the, the risk to the patient
0: what generally happens to the major burns patients that they end up in IC? what what, what who survives and who dies what and what, what do they generally those that do pass away what, what are the reasons typically so we,
1: we tend to take them to theatre initially after about 24 to 36 hours after their injury and excise as much of the burn as we safely can and repair that with donated skin or with a synthetic dermis called Integra, which is a bovine cow collagen product. And then over a period of few weeks, we gradually get their wounds healed up with their own skin. And during that period... We tend to find along with our critical care colleagues that the patients have multiple episodes of infection, that they have periods where they need high levels of inotropic support and where they have periods where they need high levels of support for respiratory distress. And quite a few of them, as I mentioned about the fluids, have have problems with their guts from uh, excessive fluid affecting the gut function. And over, generally speaking, for your typical major burn, it would take about four to eight weeks of critical care and frequent surgical management to get them better. The ones that don't survive are the ones who have severe comorbidities most commonly. And they tend to be patients with... um, Addiction issues who have had other comorbidities because of that or patients, older patients. Occasionally, young patients die usually of overwhelming sepsis. It's a race to get the patient healed before they become overwhelmingly septic because of massive open wounds. Then once the patient's skin is healed over, usually after about two months or so, they then go home but maintain close contact to the hospital to have treatment for their scars because patients who survive major burns have very severe scars and often they'll be off work if they're working from anything between six months and two years. Occasional patients never return to work. Often after a a year or two they'll return and need further skin grafting surgery or other types of surgery for scar complications and some of them end up having an operation every year for 20 years to make the best long-term result for them. So we have a huge team of people who are involved in looking after them, both in hospital and then during their recovery. Um, and, and there's a lot of different processes whereby we try and support them um, psychologically and physically through that.
0: Escharotomy is it is that a skill worth knowing for for kind of emergency personnel? Now, obviously, we in the Glasgow Royal Infirmary we have a burn centre here, but there will be listeners here who are in remoter communities. Is it something worth learning? Is it something that's ever required very early in the course, or what's your thoughts around that? I think
1: probably not. But if you had a a situation where someone was stuck in the Western Isles, for example. We could talk a, a surgeon through doing it. the The key problem is that if it if it's done in a non-theatre environment, you can get severe, uncontrollable bleeding that is just a nightmare for the personnel involved, and and it also compromises the patient's outcome. So that's that's the big worry about it. And, and secondly, it um, creates a even if it goes well, it creates an open wound for infection, so it's better done these days in a theatre environment. But we'd, we'd be happy to if a person was in a situation where the patient was stuck for six to twelve hours after injury, and it was necessary, we could talk talk them through that.
0: So, if you don't mind, we, we always generally finish with some audience questions. So, we've put out some some questions for you. if so it's a bit of a mishmash of things. Um, just quick fire, if you don't mind. Um, so Michael Denari asks, what have been the biggest adva- advances in burns management in your career?
1: I think the biggest advances have really been in the, the overall application of an aggressive multidisciplinary approach to removing all the dead skin from massive burn injuries as quickly as possible, getting it repaired, and then getting the patient through the next few weeks safely. And, it, and it's the whole process that that's involved in that. And the best outcomes and the best units are those that actually get that all to work every single time. So it, it's fascinating. It's, it's probably like emergency care as well in, in terms of the fact that it's not necessarily one single thing but it's the way of getting the whole process to work consistently and safely every time. So that so the best services do that.
0: Uh, Mary Walsh asks, How do you think Scotland would cope tomorrow if there was a Grenfell Tower incident? Um, with dozens of severe burns patients, and what is the major incident plan for Scotland for multiple burns victims? Uh, that,
1: that's, a, that's a great question, and, and we're actually... I'm the lead clinician of the Burns Network, and we're just at the moment revamping our plan, and so I'm actively having meetings with Ray D'Souza, the um, Resilience Officer for, for Scotland, and with various other people to, to develop that. We have a plan which is based around the Commonwealth Games which is a broad plan, but it's, it, and it's good, but it's not specific enough to f- answer exactly the question that I think she's asking, which is where would all these major burn patients go and how would we treat them? So what what we're working out is basically a system whereby the very, very sickest patients go to general hospital ICUs, the most treatable major burn patients go to all the burns and plastics units in Scotland. All the minor burns get treated through our network both at the plastics units and in various interested A&E hospitals where we've, we've got relationships, Or sorry general hospitals with A&E departments where we've got relationships. And then ones left over from that we would have to transfer to England and I, I've got very good relationships with a variety of units in England. So. I have the outline of a plan which has been written out, but it's not all signed off yet. Um, but that is a really important and topical question which we're we're putting a, quite a bit of work into at the moment.
0: Thank you. Brian Adams asks: What are the biggest controversies in burns management?
1: I think the biggest controversy is around the fluid resuscitation that we that we've discussed um, in in terms of the fact that the as ICU for burns patients became better, so patients tended to be resuscitated with too much fluid um, for a whole range of different reasons. And in the last ten to fifteen years, there's been a progressive movement to, to to kind of rectify that. But it but it remains a real challenge because, as I said before, the the ICU doctors are faced with a situation where you know, whatever anyone says, they are dealing with the problems of sedated patients, of poda- patients who are being ventilated, which compromises venous return, compromises cardiac output, and they need to give more fluids. So that that issue has is, is been termed fluid creep is the problem of, of people just giving more and more fluid. That's probably the, the, th- the thorniest and, and most um, controversial issue. Um, other things... Um, Simpler things are, are whether or not you should skin graft children's burns that are partial, deep partial thickness early or whether you should wait for 10 days um, our policy if we're in doubt is to wait for 10 days but some people don't do that and, and the, the issue is if, if, you, if you graft them early they get better quicker but you may be grafting patients that just don't need surgery at all that would heal anyway because no one's yet got a perfect way of saying how deep a burn is at two to three days. So so that's another big controversy.
0: So Michael Howard asks, when and why do you take patients to theatre? And I know we've touched on this a little bit through the podcast, but is there an optimal time and, and how do you yeah. approximately approach that question?
1: So electrical burns you take to theatre as soon as possible to get rid of all the dead muscle and to revascularize if needs be. Full thickness, life-threatening burns, you take to theatre 24 to 48 hours to get rid of as much of the dead skin as possible, but after the patient's reasonably stable. Full thickness burns, which are just needing skin grafting for um, reasons of function or healing, we would graft in the first five days after injury, just the first available operating list. Children's deep partial thickness scalds. Personally, here we would, if we were in doubt, we would wait till ten days after the injury, so that we're grafting them at a time where they still heal up by three weeks. Um, to get them healed before three weeks. But we wouldn't graft them very early because it, we're doubtful about the depth. So those are the main
0: criteria that I have. So Mary Louise Thornton asks, how did you get involved in research uh, Africa and what are the biggest barriers to plastic surgery in developing countries and how can they, how can you overcome them?
1: That's a great question. Uh, the Research Africa... Started off with a surgeon from the old Cannesburn, Jack Mustardi, And I was then invited when I started as a consultant here in 1996 to go out. I went out and did some work at a conference there at that stage. But my involvement really started because a surgeon from Accra called Apoko Ampoma um, trained with me between 2003 and 2005 and I established a close relationship with him. And, and since then, I've gone to help him teach in the unit and to train his registrars, You know, probably on average, once or twice a year since 2007. So that was how I got into it. Um, the challenges are are many. The, the resources are a huge issue for them. And... Um, whilst medical and nursing education is very good, they are very short of resources. Um, also, corruption within their system, as it is in most African countries, is is a huge problem. So the the, the two issues are, you know, you're short of resources, and then you have people working within the system who also uh, effectively steal some of the resources as well. Um, but the good side of things I think is that enthusiasm and medical nursing education and desire for knowledge is is very very admirable in in the African countries I've been to and, and their professionalism is often the equal of ours really.
0: And last question is my question, which I ask everyone, if that's okay. So if you if you um, if I could take you back on a time machine to meet your junior self just leaving medical school. What have you gained in all of your years of experience? And it might be a clinical or non-clinical thing. What would you pass on to your junior self starting And What do you think would, would help them starting their career? I think one huge
1: thing that I, I learned in burn care was to learn from all the people in the multidisciplinary team, especially the nurses. And I think one of the things, that a couple of my kids are junior doctors. One of the things you notice is that the more junior you are, the less tolerance you have for the nurses, probably because they keep bothering you with calls. And and I would, going back, I would try and find a way of being as thoughtful as I could be about learning from the nurses in whichever area I was working with, learning from other healthcare professionals. Um, And I think that would have helped me to get a broader understanding about the areas that I'd worked in more quickly than I necessarily did in my career. So that's probably one of the main things that I would pass on to, to junior doctors. But it's a challenge because they're, they're, you know, they are kind of at the nurse's mercy and, and, and that creates a complex relationship.
0: Uh, Mr. Watson, I think we have approached the end. But is there any last little parting things? Any any things that we didn't speak about that that you would like to to just mention?
1: Yeah, one thing that I've discovered since I became the lead clinician of the Burns Network and and also um, going to Africa a lot, I think probably in a, in our ivory towers in in. Uh, burns and Plastics, we probably have over the years neglected our involvement in working with A&Es, in helping with training, in having shared training. And uh, that's something that I we've done now quite a few times, gone, gone out to accident departments. And it, and it is unquestionably a, a mutual learning experience to, for us to to go to accident departments and, and to talk with um, teams there. Um, and, I, and I think it, it probably helps people in their, in their departments to have confidence in dealing with burns patients and, and other trauma patients that we deal with when, when they come in too. So that's something that I feel a certain regret for. But you only have so much time in life that in the, the time that I've got left working in the health service I'd like to work harder on is actually helping with training for the broader community exactly like this you know for the broader community of people who treat burns and not just for us looking after the most serious patients because actually the the burden of burn care in terms of numbers is is clearly by far borne by the accident departments and not by the burn care services so so that's a whole thing you know for the future i think that that we that we as burn care practitioners can think more of is is how we actually help to ind- integrate emergency care more into the network of people who treat burns
0: Mr Watson it's been an absolute pleasure, thank you so much for your time, I really appreciate you coming
1: Thanks very much Sean. thank you, it was a pleasure too thank you
0: So many many thanks to Stuart Watson for that great interview so many tips and pearls on burns management, it was actually kind of hard to summarise and we have practically transcribed the entire interview into the show notes But there were six points that stuck out in my mind and they are number one for fluid management, Hartman's is probably the first choice fluid, except in electrical burns, where you want to avoid further potassium which is released from damaged muscle cells. Number two, you want to irrigate chemical burns for a decent period of time, at least an hour, and often longer in alkali burns. Number three, one of the commonest problems that can be avoided is hypothermia, so clean the wound with warm saline. Wrap in cling film, but not too tight. Cover with big sterile towels and use a warming blanket and actively warm the patient. Number four, in terms of fluid resuscitation, it's probably best to give a decent volume of fluid up front, about one to two litres in an adult, and then calculate the Parkland formula around that. And ongoing fluid requirements are judged by urine output. Number five, they're very keen on milk and usually within the first one to two hours after presentation after the dust has settled so you've got your iv axis in you've given your analgesia you're cleaning and dressing the wounds appropriately and milk from the fridge would be fine in this instance and number six escharotomy is probably not a necessary skill for ed folk you can have significant problems with bleeding and it creates a significant open wound so best done in theater and if in a remote location and difficulty with transport They believe they could talk a surgeon through the procedure. So many, many thanks again to Stuart Watson. Please visit our show notes at stmungos-ed.com for lots more educational resources for your enjoyment. Many, many thanks to you for listening and take care.